VOCM presents Open Line. The opinions expressed on this show are not necessarily those of the station. And now your host, Patty Daly. Well, all right, and good morning to you. Thank you very much for tuning in to the program. It's Wednesday, November the 9th. This is Open Line. I'm your host, Patty Daly, and David Williams. He's producing the program this morning. We're looking forward to speaking with you on a topic of your choosing. So if you're in the St. John's metro region, the number to dial is 273-5211, or elsewhere it's toll-free long distance, 1-888-590-VOCM, which is 8626. So obviously pretty brisk morning out there today. Windy, chilly, bit more like normal November type of weather. Bit of grapple or snow or hail or something was falling when I... Made my way to the rig to make my way into work. Apparently tomorrow morning, heads up, might be some greasy conditions tomorrow morning. So always a worthwhile to change our driving habits as the weather changes again. All right, so it doesn't really feel like golf weather, but a little uh, quick check-in with Gander professional golfer Blair Bursey. Blair has been doing everything possible to try to crack into the upper echelons of professional golf. He's down trying to qualify for the PGA Tour Latin America circuit. So yesterday was day number one at that particular event. He shot a 2 under 70. He's tied for second. The winner after four days gets a season exemption to play on that Latin American tour. Second through 12th get a half exemption. 13 through 40 a conditional exemption. So Blair in good shape down in Latin America trying to qualify for that tour. Dave, are you a wrestling fan? Do you watch wrestling? When we were kids, we used to watch a bit of wrestling. You know, back in the days of uh, superstars of wrestling, George Cannon. The last time I was really into wrestling is when George Crybaby Cannon took on Haystack Calhoun at the Memorial Stadium in the belly bop match. Haystack Calhoun actually swung his horseshoe at us as we taunted him as he made his way from the ring to the dressing room. But I read this story this morning, and it's a good one. It's about a St. John's wrestler named Chris Dillon. Dillon has been wrestling professionally for some 16 years. Most of that time wrestling on the circuits right here in this province of which they're pretty popular, and the attendance is pretty strong. He moved to Halifax back in 2016, more access to some of the bigger circuits. Now he's wrestling in the AEW. It's the second bi- second biggest wrestling organization behind, of course, the, what do they call it now? The World, the WEF? Is it? WWE, Dave Williams tells me. Okay, so he's on the second big circuit. He had his first match. It was a tag team match. And one of his opponents on the other side of the turnbuckle was a guy named Satnam Singh. Satnam Singh played for the St. John's Edge, seven foot two center. So he's trying to make his way through the professional uh, wrestling ranks as well. So Chris Dillon, he's there. He's on the big circuit now. So congratulations to him. Just uh, wrestled in front of a crowd of 7,000 people, much different than the CLB Armory, of course, where he cut his teeth as a wrestler. And as a child, apparently, he used to go down and watch all the time, you know, try to help out and tear down the rings and get some advice, learn how to take the knocks and the bumps, how to drop the the big elbow on someone, maybe put a suplex. So Chris Dillon, looks like he's doing okay out there. All right. Congratulations to everyone here in the province, all the organizers, volunteers, and coaches, and all of the athletes, importantly, who have now been selected to represent the province in the Canada Winter Games coming up in 2023, February they begin, in PEI. It takes a long time to qualify as a Canada Games athlete. The selection process is extremely difficult and lengthy. So if you made it through, congratulations and good luck in PEI next year. All right. I'm learning how to play chess. 
it's been a tough slog, but I'm getting it, I think, a little bit anyway. I'm not going to come and play you all of a sudden, but this one caught my eye. It was today in 1985 that Gary Kasparov, at 22 years of age, became the youngest ever world chess champion by beating his fellow countryman Anatoly Karpov. 1985. It's not like I'm studying Kasparov's moves or anything, but chess saw a huge spike in interest and participation throughout the pandemic. Okay, let's keep going. So the meeting uh, regarding the problem the provincial health ministers and federal health minister Yves Duclos in BC. Nice question being posed by some listeners, and I don't have the answer, but I'm trying to find out, is we know Tom Osborne, the province's uh, minister of health community services, he's been here. He's in the house. And in fact, last night we were told that Tom Osborne is now the longest serving MHA since 1949. He's been an elected member of the House of Assembly for some 26 plus years. Anyway, so it's a good question. Who was representing the province at these important meetings? There was all sorts of stuff on the agenda, but the hyper-focus was on funding. So Minister Duclos said the federal government is ready to increase funding. Currently, it's about 22%. The provincial ministers and territorial ministers are looking for some 35% per year in stabilized, maintained funding. Now the premiers are reporting that there is absolutely no progress on increased funding coming from the federal government. So, I mean, that's the tale of two cities, isn't it? Yeah, well, we're ready to look at it, but now the premiers say absolutely no progress has been made. But yes, that's an important conversation about who actually represented the province at those meetings. I don't know what we're trying to find out, and when we do, we'll bring it to you. And it's also a bad look. There was a scheduled joint press conference between the uh, provincial and territorial leaders and Minister Duclos, and he backed out. So that leads people to believe that his utterance of they're ready to look at increased funding might not be anything to see here just yet, folks. And in the healthcare world, Bill 20 passed last night unanimously, apparently, in the House of Assembly, and that, of course, is the legislation to see the amalgamation of all regional health authorities into one entity. Now, as you all know, it got off to a ragged start when it wasn't presented to the province's Information and Privacy Commissioner, Michael Harvey, but they had a positive meeting one day last week, and the members of the House were given enough detail for understanding what the legislation included and apparently they're all comfortable enough to see it go through and we'll see how that actually works whether or not you know we're always told that these won't be an opportunity to look at redundancies and overlaps and maybe thin out the workforce working for the department of health community services but how can that possibly be certainly there's got to be some uh, jobs identified that we can do away with. No one's cheering for anyone to lose their job, but government has to be efficient. And as we know, government is rarely efficient. Anyway, you want to talk about that? Let's go. And this one on behalf of a listener who wrote an email, and it's about medical records. We hear the stories all the time. I just lost my family doctor. He or she has now retired or decided that they want to practice somewhere else in the country or somewhere else in the world. And so consequently, what then becomes of your medical records? Far too often, it ends up in the hands of a third party, one company in particular in Ontario, and you have to pay a pretty big administrative fee to get back your own health information, your own medical records. It's about $300 per person. You know, when we have a direct relationship between the family doctor and MCP, I know it's not the home of medical records. It's a billing service by and large. But upon their decision to leave, is it not possible to set up some sort of arrangement where people from this province who through no fault of their own are losing their family doctor can just have easy, cheap, if not free access to their medical records, maybe just a tiny administrative fee to get them, or give your patients a heads up long enough so that they can come collect them 
of their own accord because that just doesn't seem sound fair 300 bucks to get my own information back anyway that's uh, a topic for your consideration and also this comes forward all the time is people struggling to get a doctor in the first place but then what happens unfortunately far too often is let's just say you've been waiting for a long long time to get an appointment and maybe your symptoms that caused you to call the clinic to get an appointment have waned but you will have an appointment on the books and then lo and behold you don't show up so yeah communication between the clinic and the patient to ensure that all hands are in lockstep and are aware of upcoming appointments but if you're not going to go because now all of a sudden you feel better or you're busy or whatever the case may be or you forgot we've just got to make sure that these appointments don't go unfilled people not showing up and that extends all the way to specialist appointments and diagnostic services the numbers are pretty wild when we talk about the wait times maybe wait times can be benefited by folks showing up for their appointment or at least canceling if they know they can't make it in time you want to talk about it let's do it all right sticking with health these stories once again they come at me fast and furious it's regarding the want for families to age in place to not go to an institution like a long-term care facility you know one one person or another has some increased needs for support inside the home whether it be simple stuff cooking and cleaning and doing their hair or managing the television or whatever the case may be so the wait list to get into a long-term care facility is already extensive but when we know that people can and want to stay at home, to age in place. There's a shortage of home care workers. Now, it must be an extremely difficult job. There's big conversations to be had about training and the rate of pay for home care workers. But we're just not doing well enough on that front. We gotta prepare for the future, like we talk about all the time. If we wait till the bitter end, the 11th hour, it becomes way more expensive, way more chaotic, and more and more people are left on the outside looking in. So talking about wait times to get in to a long-term care facility. This one story deals with this family. The parents got sick. Seven months after applying for a long-term care bed, they finally got one at the big facility down in uh, Pleasantville. Here's some of the numbers. Uh, so seven months it was for that one alone. And for people, for instance, living with dementia, the numbers in this province and nationally and the forecasted numbers of people that will be living with dementia by 2030 are something we've got to wrap our mind around and prepare for. We've been talking about it for years. What's actually been done, pragmatically speaking, on the ground here in preparation? Not really sure. But here's some of the numbers for your consideration. Provincially, somewhere in the neighborhood of 10,100 people are living with dementia. By 2030, that number is expected to grow by more than 40% to 14,000. That brings upon big conversations about whether or not we're going to have an expansion of the paid family caregiver. Currently, there are some parameters that have to be met for you to qualify for some pay from the province, the Department of Health and Community Services. Any family member except for spouses or common law partners can be a paid caregiver under the home support program. I don't know why you would pull the person who would be closest to, most familiar with, the person who loves the folks, the person who needs some additional supports and help and assistance in the home, and they can't be qualified as a paid uh, caregiver in their own home. I don't know why that would be the case. But preparing for the future, whether it be, yes, understanding what personal care homes and long-term care facilities look like, and yes, to prepare for the fact that more and more people would like to stay at home as they age, for obvious reasons. Anyway, that's a big one. All right, we've been talking Crown Lands, and rightfully so. 
So a couple of things. We've got this uh, gentleman named Greg French. He's a lawyer in Clarenville who obviously he knows much more about Crown Lands, the history of how we arrived to the place we are today. He's going to come on the program around 930. I'm looking forward to that conversation. He wrote a post on social media yesterday that got a lot of traction. It's super interesting. And we'll get a breakdown from Mr. French about Crown Lands regarding individuals. We know what's going on here. There was a review back in 2015 talking about Crown Lands and some recommendations on a variety of fronts to make it easier. When you hear stories of people who have been living in a home on a piece of Crown Land for four decades, go to sell and then find out they can't, obviously there's something wrong there. When squatters' rights were abolished, and Mr. French has a nice history lesson to teach us about how we arrived at the abolishment of uh, squatters' rights, what it means realistically, and then the path forward as we deal with more and more of these stories. So we'll get the information from here. Squatters' rights used to include this. People would have to show documentation of 20 years of continuous occupation or ownership if they live inside a municipality. It's 30 years that they live in an unincorporated area to have rights to their land. So this is a big story. In addition to that, it's one thing when we talk about the individuals and going through the legal process and the time and expense associated with it. But let's just think about this out loud. We've got a process unfolding right now where the province is going to be looking at selling... 10,000-plus square kilometers of crown land, prime real estate. Now, a lot of it will be concerning wind projects. You know who the happiest 31 entities are in this province? Everyone who's got a proposal on Minister Parsons' desk outside of World Energy GH2. They've been the focus, right? A lot of that, I think, is because of John Risley himself. We do know the Port of Argentia. We had the CEO on this program talking about their hopes in the future. But, of course, they've got the property already established. When you see the map of the crown land that's being considered, it's extraordinary. Add to it, there's only going to be five days of opportunity for public consultation before these big decisions are made. So where is the province right now? Five days is simply not enough anyway. Where is the province right now with the approach they're going to take to approve any of these proposals? Selling the land, leasing the land, preventing any unfortunate scenario where one project or another goes south and all of a sudden they own that land and can proceed to do a variety of different things with this expensive piece of property that is ours. So that's a big conversation. And yes, World Energy GH2 gets all the attention, but some of these places, they have some overlap with some protected areas. Certainly we have to talk about the environmental sensitivities, migratory routes, flora and fauna, whatever the case may be. But five days consult with the public on 10,000 plus square kilometers of crown land. So we'll hear from Mr. French on the individual front, and maybe he'd like to chime in on these consultations that are pending as well. But if you would like to chime in on it, on any front, we can do it. And speaking of hydrogen, See, between the feds and the province of Alberta, it's the creation of the largest hydrogen plant in the world. It's about a $1.6 billion project. Between the feds and the province of Alberta, they're chipping in over $460 million, which begs the question, where do we remain on public funding for any of these projects? Most recently, when I spoke with Minister Parsons, it was the province was not interested. There is an establishment of a quote-unquote green fund federally that, of course, they'll all avail of if they can get their hands on it. But anyway, let's go. Quick mention federally. We know the SEAL Summit kicked off yesterday here in the province at the Delta Hotel in St. John's. The federal minister of fisheries is Joyce Murray. Her office sent us an email this morning asking if they could come on, if she could come on this program at 945, and we said yes. 
So like we always do, especially with fish harvesters themselves and or CNL or FFAW, if there are questions you'd like to hear posed publicly on this program to the minister, I have my own thoughts and questions in my mind that I'm going to ask. But if you'd like to put forward a suggestion via email or social media or what have you, please do exactly that. So Federal Minister Joyce Murray coming up around 9.45. One of her responsibilities is the Coast Guard. That's on the list. Goody Hutchings, who's the member for the Long Range Mountains, uh, a minister of the Crown, she says she's in full support of expanding uh, search and rescue capacity in Labrador, as is Yvonne Jones, we're told. And that question is absolutely coming for Minister Murray. If they're listening, there's your heads up. But, you know, of course, I've got to ask that one. And speaking of Labrador... I'm hearing from not only community members in Happy Valley Goose Bay regarding the homelessness issue, but I got an email this morning, or I guess it came last night, I read it this morning. It was heartbreaking. A lady who now currently lives in Fredericton, one of the homeless people right now living on the trail network, one of 80, is her brother. And the story is just enough to knock you off your feet. Again. It's much better for me and the listeners if people in the area can talk about what they see. And then, of course, there's comments coming from the RCMP Commissioner, Brenda Lucky, about not criminalizing mental health and addictions issues. Fair, but public safety is their mandate. They have the opportunity to keep the public safe or safer while we work towards solutions, expansion of social services and what have you. But anyway, let's go. How are we doing on the telephone there, David? Let's get rolling. Uh, and we can talk about the price of diesel. Government is going to have to carefully consider backing away the taxes on home heating fuels and diesel while we try to weather this pending winter. And great story in the Telegram about the four-day work week. <laughs> You've heard me put that out there many, many times. There's one organization that's quoted in it, uh, Facey Financial, and they've established it. You know, on the heels of some of the remote work and hybrid systems that businesses were f- forced into during the pandemic, they figure that, you know, some of the perks at the top maybe should be perks offered to the staffers. Now, they don't have a huge operation so far as the numbers of people working, six core staff apparently, but they're all working four-day work weeks. You can't take Monday or Friday. They don't want to establish the permanent long weekend for their staff. But as long as their efficiency numbers and productivity numbers are up, apparently things around the office have improved dramatically with this four-day work week. It won't work for every industry or every business, but I think it's being considered more and more as the old, as they say, work-life balance is a careful consideration. We're on Twitter. We're a VOCM Open Line. You can follow us there. Our email address is openline at vocm.com. When we come back, it's your turn to join us live on the air to talk about whatever's on your mind. Don't go away. Welcome back to the program. Let us start on the top of the board. Say good morning to Todd Perrin. Good morning, Chef. You're on the air. Morning, Patty. How are you doing this morning? Great today. Thanks. How are you doing? Oh, not too bad, boy. Um... Thought I'd take uh, the opportunity this morning to give a call in and just uh, kind of flick a bit of my uh, frustration out over the radio um, with a topic that's been, you know, hot on everyone's lips is, is inflation and the cost of everything, fuel and food and everything else. And and just to kind of put something out there that I don't know if I'm missing something or, or what, but it seems to me that, you know, the, the, the ire that people are throwing around generally is... Mostly, you know, what's government going to do about the cost of fuel? What's government going to do about the cost of food? And uh, you've alluded to it on your program many times. Um, this is all, you know, inflation and the price of, of food and fuel particularly, because they're, they're two of the biggest drivers of inflation. Um, 
is all happening at a time when the biggest companies in the world that control these things are making more money than they've ever made. And so I don't understand how government pulling tax off of fuel, uh, which, you know, tax goes to pay for programs that we all avail of as a society. Uh, why should we pay? Because that's what the government's not paying if we reduce taxes on fuel. We're paying for it. Um, why should we be subsidizing these companies in these times? It's, it, it blows my mind that it's not more of a conversation. Subsidizing uh, which companies, Todd? What are you referring to? Well, the big the big oil companies, Patty, the, you know, the five, six big oil companies that, you know, released their profits every quarter in the last couple of years and they're the biggest profits they ever had. The Loblaws of the world in food. I mean, you know, we all know that, that these commodities are, are controlled by very few uh, large businesses. I mean, you know, the oil business is, you know, it's, it's, it's what we got going on is, is trickle up ec- economics. Is this money is going into the system and is all ending up in in corporate profiteers. I mean, you know, there's no other way to, to look at it. I mean, what's driving inflation? What's driving inflation is that the people who control fuel and gas and oil and the people who control food are jacking the price up. And what do you do about it? <laughs> you know, I don't deny that, but the immediacy of getting through the winter versus establishing whatever might be referred to as a windfall tax for big energy companies, they're kind of two different things or two different conversations. One, governments can be nimble and addressed today. Uh, secondly, uh, the other option to deal with the enormous profits is, I think, a little bit more complicated. Personally, I know Parliament is looking at some sort of investigation into grocery chain profits this year. I know their inputs are also up, but Loblaws, for instance, is making $1 million per day more than they were this time last year. So the oil companies, and again, also when we try to factor in the global impact, well, I'm not just talking about the war in Ukraine or anything, but the manipulation afforded to organizations like OPEC, and then, yes, the profits that have been recorded and reported for the major players here in this country are off the charts. But how do you deal with that for someone who's going to have to fill up their oil tank in December? That's, no, the, and, that's, the, that's, the, that's the distinction that I try to grapple with. You know, and you're, and you're bang on the money, right? I mean, you're, you know, we're dealing with, obviously, a massive issue that is global and worldwide. And, you know, there are people that need immediate assistance and help and, you know, someone to, you know, alleviate the pressure that they're under. But I feel like that's all we're talking about. And, and you know, I think that it lets these big, you know, look, listen, Patty, I'm not a socialist. You know, I'm someone who's trying to be in business myself and, and whatnot. But, like, the there's there's few too few, uh, you know, individual corporations and groups that control too much wealth, right? And and that's the bottom line. I mean, you know, like, speaking of it practically, you know, from uh, the purchasing that I have to do for, for, for business, I mean, there's there's three or four outlets, wholesalers, whatever, that we can deal with. That's it, right? And, and one of them might decide, you know what, I, I'm not delivering to you because of whatever, right? So if you want to, every, any, you want to meet every restaurateur in, in eastern Newfoundland on a Tuesday, go to Costco because that's where everybody is because it's the only place we can go. So what do we do if Costco goes, you know what, canola oil is not 55 bucks a jib, it's 90 bucks a jib. You're shagged. And and that's what's going on. I had this conversation with a buddy of mine the other day. It was like, how expensive would gas have to get before people had stopped driving to work? And the answer is, it, it, there's almost no end to it because people are just, because what do you do? You can't just decide to stay home. You know, so it's it's a question of directing the ire and directing the reform 
in the right direction. Not to assume that government doesn't have a role to play, especially in the near term. But the, the way we've uh, allowed our, our economy to, you know, put too few people in control of too much is, is biting all of us in a world where now they got all the excuses in the world. You know, mm-hmm. COVID, this and that and whatever. And it's like, you know, like, you know, all the people talk about gas prices. Why, is, why did diesel go up 60 cents in two days? Well, it's not for me to say the PUB will point to the shortages of ultra-low sulfur kerosene, which is about 75% of the mix. And when you talk about stove oils, it's about 100%. So that's where they point the finger of blame, not to say that that's accurate or fair or verifiable, but that's what they'll tell you. And I do try to talk about profitability. And I have talked about the profits in the grocery store chains. And just for context for folks regarding oil company profits, and this is just from the large oil and gas companies in Canada. Suncor, Q3, $2.565 billion profit. CNRL, $2.8 billion profit. Imperial Oil, $2 billion profit. Sonobis, $1.6 billion profit. Tourmaline, $2 billion profit. That's $11 billion for profit in the one quarter for those big oil and gas companies. This time last year in the third quarter, the profit was $5 billion. We have a problem. A hundred percent. And, and you know, again... I'm not a, a you know a socialist or a communist or anything like that, but you know there's a, there's a reasonable return that people should be expected to get. And when you know it's always uh, the customer consumer always pays, and when we get that, that's how it works. You know, it, 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 but there has to be a limit to that. And when we've got you know, we get to the point where, and I mean, you know, like, again, we've lived it here in, in Newfoundland in, in, you know, in our business for years. There's only so many people to buy things from, you know, so there's only, you know, there's only three, like I said, three, four large outlets to buy things from. And, you know, through COVID, not only are, are things more expensive, obviously the prices of everything have gone up, but the terms have shortened, if there are any. A lot of the people that we deal with now, they won't, they would, a truck won't leave the air until they got your credit card number. There's no terms anymore. Or we got to pay for stuff before we get it, mm-hmm. before we sell it. I mean, so, like, it's not only the cost. It's the whole way that suppliers and, and people who bring you goods interact with you. And, and people who hold the cards, they can do whatever they like. If my propane company decides that, you know what, Todd, you've got to pay, you know, you got to give us $1,000 up front before we come deliver your propane, what am I going to do? I can't go to, you know, propane X, propane Y, propane Z. There's only two guys to talk to. So, you know, like, this is the reality of the situation. And, yes, it's the way the world works, and, yes, it's what we are into. But, the, the, you know, it's going to be a significant problem this winter because, you know, you've been listening to it on your program all, all, you know, all year and longer. People think that some person in Newfoundland, some elderly person or some vulnerable person, is not going to end up in the hospital because of malnutrition and hypothermia this winter. You've got another thing coming because that's common to this community. It is. You know, the, I, look, profit is not a bad word, but talking about what is reasonable is, I think, an important conversation. So how you establish a windfall tax, I just do not know but i know that we have to have this conversation openly and honestly the pushback is always the same right well number one you're socialist well that doesn't equate socialism and also is well what about for people who have their investments in these companies their investment will have a lower rate of return because of blah 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 and then they'll say well what about if you do that and you push away investment from these companies to invest in future projects in this country the, those companies will go where the product is and the product is here right so uh, 
you know, I think we exaggerate some of the pushback as to why we can't do more and we can't talk about these things. They're not sacrosanct, or they're not sacred cows. We're talking about what's reasonable and what the impact is on individual taxpayers, you know, whether it be on diesel or gasoline or groceries or insurance or telecom products, whatever the case may be. Those conversations have been left by the wayside because every time you say it, you get labeled something stupid, one of the isms that may or may not be appropriate or accurate, but that's how the conversation gets stalled all the time, every time. Uh, Todd, final word goes to you. Yeah, just to say, Patty, you know, like the, you know, how do we uh, implement windfall tax or how do we do a better job of taxing corporate profits and whatnot? I mean, all, all that requires is the will and, you know, the power of the, the federal government turning its, its barrels to that issue. You know, CRA hired, you know, hundreds and thousands of people to go around and get $1,000 back and $2,000 back from people who got overpaid by CERB. You know, like it, it's all about where the perspective and where the, the energy is directed. And to be afraid or beholden to a crowd of people that got the country held for ransom, I mean, it's time for governments to, to, to get a backbone. And, and you know, and for, for the population as a whole to support government. Like, you know what, boys? Go after those people. That's where the money is. The money's not sitting in Ottawa. The money is sitting in corporate bank accounts. I mean, that's it. So that's where we got to go get it. It's not from Justin Trudeau or from whoever's in power. And so, you know, that's what the government got to do. And, and the sooner they do it, in also at the same time, we're trying to help people who need help right now, uh, the better off we'll all be because this got to come to an end because the logical conclusion, this is not good for anyone. I would add to that, we've got to close every single available accounting loophole for corporations and rich Canadians, uber rich Canadians, to shelter their wealth offshore somewhere. There's billions of dollars there as well. Todd, good to have you. Yeah, appreciate the time. Cheers, Benny. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye. All right. As uh, mentioned earlier in the program, Greg French, he's a lawyer out in Clarenville. We're going to talk Crown Lands right after this. Don't go away. Weekdays on VOCM. It's Open Line with your host, Patty Daly. Join the conversation each morning from 9 a.m. to noon on your VOCM. We get people talking. Welcome back to the program. As advertised, joining us on line number three is Clarenville-based lawyer Greg French. Good morning, Greg. You're on the air. Uh, good morning, Patty. Thanks for uh, inviting me on your show. Happy to have you on. I was uh, super fascinated with the uh, post, the long thread that you put on Twitter. It might feel like some of the fundamentals are going to get broached here first, but let's start with a bit of a basic history lesson here. For starters, there are so many people living on Crown land because when they first uh, settled here, there was no other way to deal with anything because there wasn't even a government till 1830. So just talk about the basics here, about your historical understanding of why so many people are living on what is now Crown land with the, with the absence of squatters' rights. So let's, let's start right at the beginning, how people first occupied the land and the implications of well, uh, it's, uh, I suppose, somewhat common knowledge that uh, Newfoundland settlement wasn't exactly an organized affair, that ships' crews would come over, they'd find a port to dock in, crews would stay over the winter, and they'd be set up as fishing stations going forward. And that's how many hundreds of outport communities came to be. Now, that happened over the course of centuries, and um, it was always unsanctioned by the British Crown. The big concern back in uh, colonial days was the British fishing fleet coming out of the West Country, uh, prosecuting the fishery on the Grand Banks. They didn't want settlement in Newfoundland because that was going to be competition for them. So I believe it was in 1634 or 1698, depending on which date you run from, uh, settlement was officially prohibited on the island of Newfoundland, and you weren't legally allowed to own land here. Now, that didn't stop people from coming over and continuing to occupy the land because there was no real enforcement of it. The fishing admirals would come by every so often and drive people out of the land, but they'd come right back again and build up. This continued for centuries 
centuries. And it was only by 1832 that uh, finally Newfoundland had a legislature granted to it and could finally tackle affairs on its own. Now, complicating it a little bit is that uh, Newfoundland's history of the legal system, really, uh, put the cart before the horse, because we had a court system set up in 1791, and the official prohibitions on occupying land in Newfoundland were lifted for St. John's in 1811, and the rest of uh, Newfoundland in 1824. So we've got about 300 years where there's nobody really in control of anything because nobody was supposed to be here. By the time the law changed, we had thousands of people settled all over the coast. There's no shortage of land, and everybody's in very small communities, so nobody had any incentive to go and uh, seek out formal title. It was never an issue for them because there wasn't really a buying and selling of land. You just found some open land and built on it. And that continued for centuries in Newfoundland, and that's really the root cause of it because when you get outside of... Uh, well, even inside of St. John's, but when, especially when you get past the overpass, every small community in Newfoundland traces its history back to that origin. And there was no option. You know, as you say, it was a bit of a free-for-all. Uh, many people living in rural parts of the province were poor. They were getting paid, you know, stock and trade and the barter system and what have you. No real access to mortgage brokers or banks to establish title ownership of the land that their family first uh, occupied. So... What happened then? Because let's bring fast forward here to 1976, because I think that history lesson helps set the stage. So they did away with squatters' rights uh, in 1976. What are the realistic implications of that? Because so many people, through no fault of their own, no access to any formalized opportunity to own title ownership of land, squatters' rights, which we know was 20 years of continuous operation inside a municipality, 30 years outside of an incorporated municipality. So what are the real-life implications? Well, I'm just going to correct you on that one, Okay, Matt, sorry. because uh, the actual period of squatters' rights before 1976 against Crown lands was 60 years, and that created problems all its own because you know, tracing the history back 60 years required the exact same issues we have today. You have to have people who are old enough, who remember it back far enough, and the old case reports of the uh, colony of Newfoundland going back pre-Confederation have more than a few cases where people you know, ran into this issue. They had to sort out, well, my father was here, and his father was here, and here are two old people who can swear to it. It's just that, for the most part, land didn't really have any amount of value to it, especially in rural areas where, again, land is plentiful and nobody's going to stop you from occupying otherwise unoccupied land. There were no banks. There were no mortgages. People built their own houses, and a lot of it did go you know, between families or, as Minister Bragg said on uh, the news the other day, you know, land went on a handshake. I believe he said his own father bought a house on a handshake. So when we get to 1976, I mean, we're into the modern era. We're into people building houses. They need mortgages. The banks aren't going to settle for a handshake deal or a handwritten loose-leaf bill of sale. They want formal title. They want defined boundaries. They want to know if we're going to put a mortgage on this, you actually own it and we're going to be secure in it. So it was um, – I actually went into the um, – to the House of Assembly Hansard transcripts from 1976 to read up on this. The plan in 1976 appears to be that uh, they were trying to make the system easier for people to straighten out their title at the time. That uh, I believe it was the minister himself, it was John Rousseau back in the day, said, look, if you've been on the land for 20 years already, why do it for another 40 when we can just get you on the rolls now? The problem was in the execution of it, because the law was passed and everyone wiped their hands of it. They never did any accounting for what was and was not private land. There was no 
community um, involvement in determining the boundaries of what was and was not private land. People occupied the land, and I suppose many of them thought, well, that law doesn't apply to me because this land has been in my family for years. And indeed, that's the problem we're running into today, that the fixation on this 1956 to 1977 period is running counter to what many, many thousands of Newfoundlanders believe relates to their own land. I appreciate the correction. The numbers I used came from the 2015 recommendations in the review of Crown Land. So you're absolutely right. And I'm, I'm, I'm glad that you corrected me where I was erroneous. We yeah, do th- th- just, to, just to interrupt there, Patty, I don't mean to cut you off. No problem. But, uh, that 20-year uh, period uh, inside municipalities and 30 years outside municipalities was actually the formal uh, recommendation of the Law Society of Newfoundland back in 2015 when government did a review of this. Mm-hmm. Uh, that all came up because there was a case uh, that went to the Court of Appeal in 2013 involving a woman out in Paradise. So we're in the metropolitan area of St. John's. And she bought her land in 1972. And the deeds were done to the standards of the day in 1972. And there was uh, an affidavit attached to the deed swearing out the history of the land back to 1913. So they did get affidavits done at the time. And it went back sufficiently far. It covered off uh, the periods in 1913 to 1933, the fellow who owned it died, his family kept up the boundaries, and then the estate of that fellow sold it in 1972. And she had to put it through the court afterward, I suppose, to clarify the title for sale, and Crown Lands intervened, and Crown Lands was the only intervenor. And uh, when it went to court, she lost, and it was upheld by the Court of Appeal to say, well, look, it wasn't used from 1956 to 1977. We don't care that your deed predates the change in the law. We don't care that there's an affidavit swearing to the history back to 1913. It's not good enough today. So the government of the province does not certify people's land titles. How does the legal system work on that front? Well, basically, I suppose the uh, easiest way to look at it is the government's very hands-off with this. Like, land title in Newfoundland is a question of opinion for any given purchaser. We, it's only us and Prince Edward Island that are still doing things this way. Every other province in Canada has what's called a land title system. And under the land title system, you can go and look up any given parcel of land in a province. You punch in a parcel identification number, pulls up a diagram of the land, pulls off the certificate of title, and the provincial government guarantees that if you're the one named on the title register for this parcel, you are the owner of it. In Newfoundland, the government does not touch the question of land title beyond whether it is or is not crown land. Who owns it privately is a matter for the lawyers to sort out between themselves on any transaction. So we do run into a lot of private issues between individuals. Common ones are, for instance, this was my father's land and father subdivided it between his children, and perhaps we can't agree on where the boundaries are now, or so-and-so actually bought this on a handshake and there's no paperwork for it. It, it falls to the lawyers to certify any given parcel of land on any given transaction to say, yes, this is good title, or no, this needs work to be fixed. And if we arrive at a situation where it needs to be fixed, but there's no way to fix it, or no easy way to fix it, it may be that there's a title dispute, it may be that people are dead, it may be that we just need to cobble together too many disparate people, uh, there's a procedure in the law called the Quieting of Titles Act. And under the Quieting of Titles Act, uh, in its simplest form, we basically put the land on trial. We go to a Supreme Court judge and say, look, here's the history of the land, here's why it's mine, let me publicize my claim to it, and if nobody fights me for it, then 
please grant me the certificate of title. Because if you get a certificate of title from the court, that is a guarantee of title. That is, uh, the law says, I believe, it's uh, indefeasible and certain title. So nobody can dispute it once it's gone to court and the trial has been held on the land. Problem, of course, is that costs thousands of dollars. The cost of advertising alone is into about $2,000 to run a survey in the newspaper. Then you've got the court time, you've got the court procedures. And what we've uh, encountered of late, the biggest problem we're running into now is that we file these things perhaps in instances where there are private disputes between individuals who either won't sign or claim to own the land, and we say, fine, let's let a judge sort this out. We'll put the land on trial. If your claim is any good, come and fight it. Otherwise, let us have it. We go in expecting a private dispute, and then the government uh, shows up and actively intervenes in the in the claim. Uh, quick question before we unfortunately run out of time. Is there a difference in the title search when we talk about the application of the land? Having a home built on the land, some what might have been pasture in the 1970s but is no longer, but you still think that you own that land because you've been there for generations. Are there any differences into the application? Uh, I, the application of the law? Well, yes. I mean, so if I, you know, the story of the diamonds in Catalina, they had a home on the land versus mm-hmm. someone who may have had family land years, years ago, grandfather had a farm, but it's no longer that. It's simply just barren land. Is there any difference when you go to search title and prove ownership or however the conversation unfolds legally? Well, the process goes exactly the same. We start by searching the records at the Registry of Deeds, which is the repository of all private transactions in Newfoundland. When person A sells to person B, goes into the Registry of Deeds. Crown Lands has nothing to do with the Registry of Deeds. Crown Lands has a separate registry up uh, up on Higgins Line, which keeps track of whether the land has been granted or solved through the courts. And there's a discrepancy that often comes up between those two registries because you'll look up land in uh, well anywhere really. You'll see it on the Crown Lands map, and it shows up that it's uh, ungranted crown land. But then when you do a title search at the registry, you'll find, oh, there's affidavits of possession swearing to the history of it. So for a lot of people, you know, when you go to build on it, for instance, you know, we're going to investigate where did this title come from? How did it come to be yours? When we get the affidavits of possession, that's when we have to go out and find the two oldest people we can find who can swear out the history of the land. Now, problems are coming up today because that date, because of the change of the law in 1977, that date is fixed and written in stone. You have to go back to December 31st, 1956, and go 20 years forward. And you have to have been on the land, specifically doing something on the land for that 20-year period. Now, that means that anything that happened before 1956 doesn't matter, and anything that happened after 1977 doesn't matter. So if, for instance, you know, you have a garden on this up to 1971 or 72 and do nothing with it after, well, you've got a problem. And that was part of the uh, situation that came up in that case in Paradise. The trial judge specifically mentioned, well, you bought it in 72 and you did nothing with it after. And the clock says you've got to run out to 1977. Last one, and then we do have to go. What's the best solution here? Because this is very convoluted, disjointed, lengthy and costly. Well, I mean, there's two ways the government can go about it, and it really depends on, it's a trade-off of control and money, because the government could solve this problem for free. They could solve it by simply changing Section 36 of the law. They could do as the Law Society recommended almost a decade ago, reinstate squatters' rights. Let the lawyers worry about the title. We'll fix it over time. The problem will solve itself parcel by parcel through every real estate lawyer in Newfoundland working on it. 
The problem is that keeps the government out of the conversation, and we still have a disconnect going on about what the government believes versus what the public believes. The best way to fix it, in my opinion, is you need to have almost a royal commission to go community by community, look at the maps, figure out who's on what land, what is being occupied, government maps that in and says, look, you can have the land you're on right now. We're going to define the boundaries. You can't go beyond that without buying it off the government. And then we've got certainty. Government would have full control over everything, but you'd have to sit down and go parcel by parcel through every community in Newfoundland to do it. Remarkable stuff. Really appreciate the information and the perspective you're able to offer on this, Greg. Thank you very much. Thank you, Patty. Take good care. Bye-bye. Bye. That's uh, Greg French. He's a lawyer based in Clarenville. Okay, let's take a break. When we come back, it's the Federal Minister of Fisheries and Oceans, Joyce Murray. Don't go away. Welcome back to the program. Let's go to line number one and say good morning to the Liberal Member of Parliament for Vancouver Quadra. She's the Minister of Fisheries and Oceans and the Canadian Coast Guard. That's Joyce Murray. Good morning, Minister Murray. You're on the air. Well, thanks, Patty. Happy to be with you and your audience. Happy to have you here. Uh, before we get into the point of the summit and what the hopeful outcomes would be, why were the media unable to cover the proceedings yesterday, given the public interest in this topic? Well, frankly, this uh, summit was an opportunity for people uh, to get together, and that's people from really across the country, uh, indigenous people, industry, scientists, and share perspectives on how we create economic opportunities uh, with, with respect to seal harvest and seal products. And I wanted to make sure that people felt that they could have a very frank and honest discussion about this. Um, there's always uh, room for different views, and I wanted people to be able to just uh, speak their piece. And so uh, this uh, uh, speaking with you and other journalists is uh, one way to have a balance between access to what's going on and having that uh, a place where people can have a frank discussion. It's one thing to have a frank discussion amongst uh, ministers and senators and scientists and businesses and the FFAW and what have you, but the biggest problem regarding SEALs is expansion of market or the absence of markets. Many decisions, maybe the World Trade Organization and or the influencers in China and the European Union and, and even here in this country, most of it is based on laws. So it's fun to talk about innovation and opportunity for markets, but what exactly is your government doing to refute the laws, to make decisions based on reality? the regulated humane harvest that is the seal hunt in Newfoundland and Labrador versus how it's portrayed by some disingenuous and lie-peddling organizations. Well, Patty, I can uh, I can tell you feel strongly about this issue, so thank you for those comments. And you're bang on when it, that it's about market development. And so that's what today is all about, is uh, different ideas um, on how we can expand markets for seal products, how we can... Well, I just came out of a session where the Fur Institute market lead was showing us the progress being made in terms of uh, strategies to market seal products. So I'm really optimistic that when you have, and we have an Inuit and uh, Indigenous session happening soon. Um, So this is very important for Indigenous people and Inuit in remote communities who depended on seal for their economic livelihood as well as food. And so I think the coming together of of the whole range of perspectives is going to help us to access new markets and grow our fish and seafood industry. 
the fishery has been used as a diplomatic tool for decades. We brought the, one of the biggest fisheries in the world to Confederation when we joined in 1949. But we've bartered away some of the quota for foreign vessels to fish in our waters and just outside of our waters and the toothless organization that is NAFO. So is it time for a bit of a heavier hand, diplomatically speaking? Here comes an MOU between this country and this province and Germany. You know, and they're part of an organization, they're part of a group that is refusing to, uh, the import of sealed product. Is it now time to say, well, if you want something from us, we need something in return, because regarding the fishery, it's been give away as opposed to get anything back. Well, thanks for that question, Patty. And we are always, and I am always, thinking about how we can defend Canada's interests and Canada's fish and seafood industry and sustainability overall, because we need that for future generations uh, in these negotiations, the international uh, negotiations. And I absolutely believe in these uh, multilateral fora because... Uh, that we have a shared ocean. In fact, there's one ocean on this planet, and and there are many, many uh, peoples and countries that, that depend on its resources. So working together is the best way to ensure that we have a, a sustainable and, and fair access to the, the bounty of the sea for Canada and for other countries. If you talk about access, I wonder, are there any plans for further amendments to the Fisheries Act? Because when your colleague Minister LeBlanc amended there a few years ago. None of the pragmatic changes were included. And you talk about access. Access is going to be guaranteed if the guiding principle of adjacency is enshrined in legislation. That would mean absolutely a boon for the inshore harvester. No longer would the major worry the annual racket between the inshore and the offshore and the foreign fishing vessels. Is there any pending legislation amendments coming to enshrine adjacency as the guiding light and the guiding principle? Well, Patty, thanks for mentioning the Fisheries Act um, uh, amendments uh, that that we made uh, under previous ministers. And it just is a reminder that we had 10 years where uh, where sustainability of fisheries was completely disrespected. The Fisheries Act was gutted. Uh, scientists were let go. The department was shrunk and was not able <clears throat> to carry out its mandate uh, as, as needed. So we have spent these last years restoring that, hiring more scientists, improving the science, uh, improving the, the Fisheries Act so that we that we have uh, restored protections because after all, sustainability is the bedrock of having healthy and growing fish and seafood sector for the next generation and the one after. So this it's been a lot of work, frankly, to undo some of the damage ideologically uh, applied to fisheries uh, uh, by a previous government. And I am still working on that. We just, the precautionary principle is just those regulations are just coming into have just come into force recently that is an important uh, basis for managing fisheries sustainably in the long term what specifically have you learned about the fishing industry in this province since you took over the portfolio not to mischaracterize your early comments about you know fish harvesters are going to have to learn to do more with less less quota leaving more and more species in the water i understand the precautionary issue i understand sustainability and rebuilding of stocks especially those in peril but what specifically have you learned about the industry because those opening comments were quite jarring to the industry players here 
Well, thank you, uh, Patty, for that question, because it, it, it helps me to uh, correct the record. I think there was some uh, skewed uh, reporting of my comments in a, in a private conversation uh, with the association. I mean, the reality is I completely understand the importance of the fish and seafood uh, industry for Newfoundland and Labrador. I respect the hard work that fish harvesters do and people on the wharfs, how important uh, the, the fisheries are for them. I also know that they are that people are very committed to this being a sustainable way of life for their children and their grandchildren. It's not just for today. And so that's part of what my role is as a minister is to ensure that I can serve that objective that people naturally have have, that we will have healthy, sustainable fisheries when their grandchildren are ready to uh, to get on the wharf. So that one of the things that is coming out of the SEAL Summit that I think really ties into this whole conversation is how can we utilize 100% of the resource that we do uh, fish from the oceans? So full utilization of SEAL, we just, we, ha- we heard from a business person in Norway, how they are using every single part of the seal carcass to create products that they have markets that are really enthusiastic about. And I think that applies to the whole fish and seafood sector, Patty, actually. If we are doing 100%, I sometimes call it zero waste fisheries, where we find a way to utilize every part from the skin, the bones, the offal, etc., then we can actually increase our economic opportunities for every ton of fish that comes out of the ocean. And I think that's a really good goal, and there are many people who share that goal and are working in that direction. Uh, A couple more quick ones. You know, there's a different set of rules and regulations on the East Coast versus the West Coast of the country regarding aquaculture. Did away with open pen farming on the BC coast, but still established here. I know there's some provincial uh, authority afforded to the aquaculture industry, but why is there a different set of rules East to West? Well, this is a, a framework that um, emerged before my time as a minister, Patty, and that is that the uh, the um, province in the east, the provinces are the regulator, and they they do uh, they make the decisions, they do the licensing decisions, and so the provinces on the east coast uh, are the responsible party for basically that industry, whereas because of a court decision on the west coast that that responsibility was transferred to the federal government. So it's the federal government that regulates the, uh, the aquaculture industry out west. And I trust the provinces and their leadership in managing uh, aquaculture on the east coast. Uh, last one. This is regarding your Coast Guard uh, portion of your portfolio. Labrador is without any search and rescue capacity on the water or fixed wing aircraft in the air. I know five wing goose bay can be a secondary go to, but that's if only if they're available at that particular time. Are you planning on putting some fast rescue craft in Labrador or other expanded services because we hear the stories and they end in tragedy far too often? Are you going to expand search and rescue capacity in Labrador? If not, why not? Well, Patty, we're always seeking <clears throat> ways to improve our capacity of the Canadian Coast Guard and 
again, we are we are building the, that capacity with the, the the national shipbuilding program and and the dozens of new vessels after uh, too long that. Uh, Canadian Coast Guard vessels were not modernized or replaced. But I do want to say <clears throat> that my thoughts are with the families of Joey and Mark, who are a sad reminder of the dangers of, of having a, a living on the sea, So, <clears throat> of, of making a living on the sea. So we have a new, brand new search and rescue vessel at St. Anthony, which serves Labrador. And the Canadian Coast Guard and I are always evaluating to make sure that our search and rescue capabilities are in the best position possible to serve Canadians wherever they may need us. So would that have been a yes or a no, ma'am? As I said, we're always working to be as effective as possible in the Canadian Coast Guard, and we've had a historic rebuild of our capacity um, again after a decade where nothing was done to replace and renew vessels. So I, I'm proud of the Canadian Coast Guard, and we will continue to do our very best to respond in a timely way to any need that uh, may arise. I wish we had more time, but appreciate you making time for the program this morning, Minister. Thank you. Well, thank you, Patty, and thanks for your questions. Take and care. your My pleasure. Yeah. Take care. Bye-bye. That's Minister Joyce Murray, Minister of Fisheries, Oceans, and the Canadian Coast Guard. Time for the news. Don't go away. Back to the show. Let's go. Land number one. Say good morning to Town Councillor out in Grand Falls, Windsor. She's also the President of Municipalities, Newfoundland and Labrador. That's Amy Cody. Good morning, Amy. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty. Thanks for taking my call this morning. Happy to do. We want to talk about what happened at the conference. There was a bunch of stuff on the agenda, but let's start with the obvious. A lot of conversations surrounding regionalization. What were you hearing? Yeah, it was. Um, we didn't have any formal sessions on regionalization. We released a report back in February. We have been working with the Department of Municipal and Provincial Affairs since then, um, and the report right now is in their hands. So we're working with them on next steps. Uh, but it was a huge topic of converse, conversation uh, throughout the conference. Uh, members asking, you know, for updates, looking for information, anxious to see things implemented and go through, um, and especially in our small towns uh, caucus meeting on Saturday, uh, regionalization came up several times. And, you know, our municipalities, regardless of size, we struggle financially. Um, there are human resources issues, there are infrastructure issues, and we know that regionalization is the path forward for us. So we're continuing to uh, work with government to make sure that they're aware that this is the topic for us and uh, that we certainly need to make sure that this continues to move forward. Where do we have to go next, though? I don't know if this is the responsibility of the minister or something that your organization can be a part of, but a lot of the pushback would be from the unincorporated municipalities, or pardon me, the LSDs, or whatever people want to refer to, because mm -hmm. they have not been part of the consultation. They haven't been part of the working groups. That's where we hear the loudest negative pushback associated with regionalization. So where do we go to broaden the number of people in the room to talk about next steps? And that would go, that would be the responsibility of the uh, Department of Municipal and Provincial Affairs to engage the members of the local service districts and the unincorporated areas. 
we do regionalization. The province does regionalization now. A lot of times we just don't realize it. Um, and absolutely their voices are welcome and we need to hear them because having them at the table as well allows us to further, um, you know, explain the need for it, explain what regionalization is, how do we get there, why it's important, and for us to make the best decisions, and everybody needs to be involved. So we're quite open to having those continued conversations. We've done the homework. We know what works for us. Um, we know that there are benefits to the local service districts and the unincorporated areas as well, and we know that when we work together, we're stronger together, and we do better things. So um, you know, absolutely, that'll be the department to have that conversation with those groups as well. But we are firm, um, you know, on our stance on regionalization and moving it ahead. What's the status of the work being done to talk about, you know, whether it be a county system, however people want to label it, because what might work on the GNP, the Great Northern Peninsula, might not work on the South Coast. So there are going to have to be unique, tailor-made solutions for collaboration or regionalization. What's the status of that kind of work being done? Because that's where it gets extremely complicated, because it won't be a one-size-fits-all. Yeah, we've said that right from the start. This is not cookie cutter. Like, this is not a one-size-fits-all. Um, right now, um, the joint working group, we looked at possibly 20 to 25 regions, and those regions are going to be vastly different. Some are going to be very similar. Um, so the department has... You know, they're still working on firming up what those regions would be, what resources they currently have, where benefits would be to sharing resources, um, what amount of money would be available to um, provide to those new regions to make sure that they function, the staffing levels that would be required to make those regions function. So, again, that's with the department. We're continuing to work with them and provide uh, input um, and to ask questions. Um, you know, we know it there's a cost associated with this we all realize that but what our argument has been all along is what is the cost of the status quo we can't continue doing what we're doing we know we're, we can do better if we work together as teams and in regions um, and that's our focus there was some conversation associated with the municipalities and what they can should be doing regarding town planning or city planning and climate change related matters right now some communities are going to the private sector to hire consultants to help them craft up a plan you know where are we now so far as you know understanding best practices and the sharing of information because it can be a costly endeavor and maybe and this not to slight anyone maybe not the expertise or understanding in-house in some communities to have an appropriate plan to deal with and address climate change whether it be about infrastructure or otherwise yeah, we had um, a plenary session at our conference on climate change. Um, we heard from the mayor of Channel Portobasque, Mayor Brian Button, joined us, and the mayor of Grand Falls Windsor, Barry, uh, Mayor Barry Manuel, um, talking about Fiona and forest fires and talking about lessons learned and how the community was impacted. We see the impact. We see the pictures. We hear the stories. Um, but... Being the preparation required when we're going into events like this, we, you know, you always hope that 
it's never going to be as bad as it as it could be. Um, but we need to be prepared for the worst. And we know the emergency management plans are so important. We need those documents to be treated as living documents. And that's another point to regionalization. We can work together because we have to rely on each other when we're going through events like that. With the forest fires, I can speak firsthand because I know we worked with the town of Bishop's Falls and we worked with the town of Botwood. We worked with the town of Deer Lake because that's where the emergency shelter was set up. Uh, we had to work with various departments, you know, within government. Um, and we need to understand what we have to offer and what we can rely on each other to help provide if we don't have it ourselves. So having these emergency plans at the ready, just being able to haul that document off the shelf and say, okay, this is the number I need to call to get a hold of this person that will help me move this forward or point me in the right direction. Those numbers and those contacts change frequently. So making sure that those documents are up to date all the time is so important. And we've seen that with, with the forest fires here this summer. We had updated, just finished updating our emergency management plan. We're getting ready to do a tabletop exercise to put into practice what we had developed. Um, and we didn't need an exercise. It was a full-blown emergency plan put in place, um, you know, and happening and living it. Channel Porta Basque and, and areas, you know, in the and the other areas that were affected by uh, Tropical Storm Fiona, the same thing. Like just knowing that those plans are there, you know who to call, you know what services you have um, to help you get through that. That's just so important. And we need to make sure that our communities have that information. And MNL certainly has toolkits available and contacts that we can provide to our memberships to make sure that they do have those emergency plans available. As usual, appreciate the time this morning, Amy. Thank you. Anything else you'd like to say before we say goodbye? Well, I just wanted to say thanks to the town of Gander, obviously. They hosted our sessions. Uh, they hosted our conference. We had over 300 delegates at our convention. And, you know, it was just, it was a huge attendance, the highest ever that we've had for a conference held in Gander. Um, we got to utilize the International Airport Lounge, which was closed off to everybody for so long um, and just be able to have our trade show sponsors in that space run a couple of sessions from there have some social events there um, it was just excellent and the topics I mean normally I try to give you a call during the conference to let you know what's going on and what we're doing and what's coming up it was just so busy um, and and so many excellent sessions happening that, uh, you know, just never had an opportunity. So I'm certainly glad to be able to talk to you about it today, and we'll certainly keep you updated on, on everything else that we've got going on as well. Thanks, Amy. Nice to speak with Thank you this you. morning. Take care. You too, Patty. Take care. Bye-bye. Amy Cody is a counselor in Grand Falls, Windsor, and the president of MNL. Let's take a break. When we come back, Bill Sterling, he's the CEO of the Newfoundland Labrador Association of Realtors, and what the complications of some of these Crown Lands-related issues would be for his members. Don't go away. And welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number four. Say good morning to the CEO of the Newfoundland and Labrador Association of Realtors. That's Bill Sterling. Good morning, Bill. You're on the air. Morning, Patty. Welcome to the program. 
Well, thanks for the opportunity. I, I was listening to Greg French, and I, I, I thought, you know, this is an issue that you know that we're seeing from the consumer perspective, and um, and I just wanted to to, to, to reach out and and you know um, say thank you to Greg for the work that he's doing, and see what we can do to help support him and uh, the the Canadian Bar Association in, in pushing this issue further and getting some response from government. Um, to hear Greg tell the story, you know, not only the historical context of how and why we are where we are, but the convoluted process of facing lawyers and their clients. What's the real-life implication for the members that you represent as realtors? Well, you know, it's it's not just our members, right? It's their clients. Sure. It, it's, it's people who are looking to buy or sell property that they think they own, they think they have good title to, and, you know, when they bought it, uh, oftentimes they were told they had good title, right? And and all of a sudden, you know, you get the minister saying, well, you're occupying this land illegally, and your option is to pay a fair market price, you know? So, like, if you're selling a house on the Bonavista Peninsula, if you're in Trinity or Port Rexton, you know, I mean, the market value of that house or that, that property is, you know, skyrocketed in the last five years. And so, like, you know, you got consumers who own their house, part of their financial plan, their retirement is to sell that property, and they're being told, oh, well, you can just go pay market value for the for the land that you're occupying illegally. just doesn't make any sense, right? And, and you know, government has, has been aware of this problem for, for quite some time, and it's time that, you know, we get some action and, uh, and, and get this fixed. So, I mean, I guess there's two courses of action. We can have a realistic purchase price to buy it from the Crown, or we can go back to some squatters' rights with modern-day time frames to be associated with it. What do your members and your clients think is the appropriate step forward? Because we're not going to do both. There's got to be one or the other, probably. Yeah, you know, I mean, we're not the technical experts in this, and, you know, thank God for people like Greg who are. Um, you know, I, I think clearly we need to get to a point where where we have a land title system as opposed to a registry that we have now. I mean, you know, one of the points I don't think that, um, you know, that came out clearly in, in, in Greg's presentation is, you know, you have Crown Lands who think they own land and they have a registry, but there's also the Registry of Deeds, which registers all of these titles, uh, and deeds that, uh, that that individual lawyers have put together and research every time a transaction is done, they've got to search back who owned the property, you know, going back right to, to when, you know, when the place was settled. And these two registries don't talk to each other, right? The, the Crown Lands Registry is totally isolated from from the Registry of Deeds. They don't talk to each other, so there's two parallel systems. The left hand doesn't know what the right hand is doing. And, you know, Greg mentioned most other provinces have a land title system that, you know, when you when you pay for that title, you own it, and they certify that you own it. And we need to get there. I don't know what the technical solution is to get there. It's going to take some investment from somebody, but it has to get done. Uh, do we have anything else to say on Crown Lands? Because I have a couple of general questions about the market. Um, yeah, well, I mean, you know, I guess, the, you know, the issue with Crown Lands, is, is one that you know we've been we've been working on for a while, um, you know, and, and certainly been supporting uh, Greg and the CBA through you know through their lobbying activities with government, and, and you know we're we're in lockstep with them, so we need to get it done. But okay, okay, Fire away with your market question. Yeah, fair enough. And I don't know much about the real estate market, but I know that mortgage stress tests and now the Bank of Canada moves with jacking up interest rates and what that means for mortgages. They all have a cooling effect potentially for the market. Now the real estate market in St. John 
Johns is might not be supercharged like it might be with foreign ownership in Vancouver or Montreal or what have you. But what are the implications for the clients and the realtors with the mortgage stress test the way it is today, which is a little bit too heavy handed, in my opinion, and the rising interest rates? Well, you know, certainly rising interest rates make housing less affordable, right? If you, you know, if you've got so much that you can afford out of your 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 monthly budget to pay for housing, the more interest you're paying, the less principal you're paying. So, you know, so, you know, a three hundred thousand dollar house costs more now than it did, you know, just in terms of 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 your 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 mortgage payments, right? So so that has that has a cooling effect. It it reduces the number of people who can who can get into the market, reduces the the the, the amount that they can purchase. Um, in in places like, you know, you use the word supercharged, Toronto, Vancouver, you know, even Halifax to an extent, you know, some of what we've seen over the last couple of years, we've seen, you know, horrendous price increases. And then as soon as mortgage rates started to rise, uh, we saw, you know, horrendous price decreases and, and the markets drop off. We haven't seen that to the same extent here yet um you know we're still uh, at a, a you know historically very high level of, in terms of the number of sales um right across the province but but we you know we're seeing supply dry up you know the months of inventory that we have on our system is, is at all time lows so we haven't seen the price you know the 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 prices start to decrease the same that we've seen in the rest of the country um, what's driving that whether it's you know the, a, a bit of a lag in terms of, of the interest rates we're not really sure um, but it is it's still a, you know quite an active market here uh, explain the mortgage stress test as it stands today and what realtors think about it because it is pretty it, it's pretty tight and it's pretty severe for folks who are trying to get in as first-time home buyers yeah, certainly it is. I mean, you know, what the stress test does is it tries to cushion um, mortgage, uh, you know, mortgage applicants who are, you know, who are particularly the first-time buyers because they're going in generally with, you know, minimum down payments. And what the, the stress test objective is is to make sure that consumers can afford the house that they're buying if interest rates go up. So if you're, you know, if you're applying, um, and, you know, a year and a half ago, you could have got a five-year mortgage for less than 2%. That's now in the 5% range, right? So the stress test makes sure that if, if you buy that house at that rate, if rates climb up, then you can still afford you know, the payments on the house. That's the theory behind it. Where we're standing right now, though, is that we're at you know mortgage rates that are, like I said, are in the 5% range. Um, they're still testing at 2% above where the, the market rate is. Right, so so you're now got to qualify for something in in the range of about seven percent, and I don't know the exact numbers because I don't deal with mortgages on a day-to-day basis. But so so you know the theory is if rates go that high, you can still afford the house. But I don't know an economist anywhere in the world who thinks rates are going to climb much higher than where they are now. We might go up another half a point before they start to come down again, but we don't ever, I don't think, are going to see mortgage rates, you know, on uh, go up to. Six and a half, seven percent. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so the the threshold is really like you know a false ceiling uh, in our view, and and we'd like to see it. And again, it it, it really applies to places that have supercharged pricing. I mean, you know, if you if you buy a hundred thousand dollar or a three hundred thousand dollar house in Newfoundland and rates change by one or two percent, yeah, it's going to cut into your budget. But it's you know, it's, and you work around it. But if you've got a million and a half dollar 
condo in Toronto and rates go up by 2%, then you're, you know, you're talking hundreds of thousands of dollars a year in interest. Right? So it's, it's designed to cool those really hot supercharged markets. Um, which we don't have here, never have had. Which is another example of one-size-fits-all as a deeply flawed mechanism employed by, in this case, the government. Uh, Last one. In some of these markets, like the Vancouver's of the world, some of the pricing issues were driven by foreign ownership and or corporate interests. I mean, hedge funds, even from the States, are coming in to buy Canadian properties. Do we see much of that here? No. Uh, Short answer is no. I mean, we, we, we don't see... Well, as an association, we don't get a lot of information on buyers, and it's it's actually a piece of work we're doing now. We've got a research project trying to find out more about our out-of-province buyers. But most of our out-of-province buyers would be from other parts of the country. Um, some of our out-of-country buyers, uh, you know, would be Americans um, looking to, you know, who have roots here, um, that that are looking to come uh, spend some time here in the summer. Uh, We don't see, you know, organized cartels or syndicates uh, coming in buying up property from outside of the country here in in, in our part of the world. As a matter of fact, you know, the provincial government is encouraging people to move here from elsewhere and buy property. You know, and and again, the Crown Lands issue then comes up because where are they looking to move? They're looking to move to Trinity or Port Rexton or places in, in, you know, on the bottom of Vista Peninsula and you're having these issues, right? So so they're all related. Um, But no, we don't uh, don't see, you know, these organized uh, syndicates of people buying huge huge swaths of land or, or property property in Newfoundland, Labrador. I appreciate the time this morning, Bill. Anything else before we say goodbye? Uh, no, I think, uh, you know, keep up the good work, Patty, and uh, and let's keep uh, keep government to account on this issue. No no problem there, Bill. Good speaking with you. All Thank right. you. Okay. Bye-bye. Take care. Bye-bye. Bill Sterling, CEO of the Newfoundland Labrador Association of Realtors. Before we get to the break, let's go to line number five. Good morning, George Parsons. You're on the air. Good morning, sir, and thanks for taking my call. Happy to do it. Uh, I just wanted to mention to your your listening public that uh, the George Street Church and the Jimmy Pratt Memorial Outreach Centre are, are hosting a flipper dinner takeout only tomorrow, uh, the 10th of November. And with the SEAL conference on the go, it may very well be another product that uh, has uh, uh, the ability to be marketed uh, more so than it's been marketed now. Uh, it's, it is, as I said, a, a takeout only. The Jimmy Pratt Memorial Outreach Center, of course, feeds about uh, uh, 300 meals a week to the uh, disadvantaged uh, of downtown area. And, of course, George Street Church uh, is celebrating uh, in 2023, which is next year, their 150th anniversary. Uh, so, again, uh, all monies that, that are realized from the Flipper Dinner, of course, will be put to good use with respect to our outreach programming and uh, events we have planned for next year. So it's it's a $25 uh, uh, takeout. Uh, you can if you have to pre-order or pre-purchase. Uh, you can do so at the church at 25 Buchanan Street, or you can call 726-8775 and place your order, and they'll give you the information to uh, actually be able to um, be able to order it online from their web page or from PayPal or from e-transfer or you know whichever method you prefer. Again, uh, it's tomorrow. Uh, There's only a limited number of tickets left, uh, and we'd like to sell them all, obviously. So if anybody uh, in your listening audience uh, can hear this message and flipper dinners of interest to them, or if they've never tried one, 
and uh, think that uh, it's something that they'd like to try because there is a tremendous market for it, obviously. Uh, we'd certainly love to be able to supply it with one. Well, I mean, I know for, for starters that the Jimmy Pratt Foundation does critically important work, not only feeding the disenfranchised youth in the downtown area, but one of the driving forces to see the implementation of full-day kindergarten back in 2015, talking about early childhood education. The things that you're doing are important to the community in addition to feeding the disenfranchised youth downtown. So good luck with this, Bill. Uh, George, hopefully a sellout. I need to give you a correction there, though. Oh. We are the Jimmy Pratt Memorial Outreach Center, the same Jimmy Pratt, uh, a different uh, incorporated uh, registered charity, and we feed the uh, the homeless, uh, the the uh, those that are facing challenges to everyday life. And, uh, again, uh, we work hand-in-hand hand on times with the foundation itself. Okay. Two separate entities, sir. Well, I'll give you both a shout-out. How's that? Perfect. There you go, George. Thanks a lot. And thank you for taking my call. My pleasure. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye. All right, let's take a break. When we come back, lots of time for you. Don't go away. Join us for On Target, one hour in which Linda Swain examines topics that mean the most to you. On Target, weekday afternoons at 1 on your VOCM. Uh, let's go. Welcome back. Uh, line number two. Terry, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. Uh, thanks for taking my call. No problem. Uh, Patty, I want to call in this morning and uh, offer a $5,000 uh, reward uh, for the arrest of uh, the culprits who, who, um, who drilled the 12 tires out on my boom truck uh, on the exit from Scott Avenue to the TCH in Grand Falls, Windsor over the weekend. What did they do? They took a drill to each of the 12 tires. Yeah, uh, but they did. Uh, the yes. truck was broke down on the side of the highway there, and we had to order some parts in, so uh, we put our flares out and do what we typically do. So when the mechanic go back on Monday to put uh, the mechanical part back on, he noticed that all the tires were flat. So upon the further inspection, um, he noticed that they were all drilled out, and all 12 of them, and, and the cost is going to be between twelve to $15,000. And to me, this was um, a malicious attack on either me or, or my business, and uh, we need to get to the bottom of this. This style of stuff needs to stop. Uh, we, this cannot be tolerated in our society. It's all bad enough. We're trying to run a business here as it is, and, and the cost of running the business now uh, is astronomical. Uh, just with the price of fuel going up, it, it's crazy. But uh, this this was a, a, a very serious attack on our business, Patty. We've been in business since 1988, and we employ uh, up to 100 people in the central Newfoundland area. Uh, Terry, why would you think it's uh, uh, coming after your business in particular? Or is because, it just random act of violence? What leads you to believe no, they might be a, a, a random act of violence? Um, or, uh, not so certain because this is a truck that's parked on the side of the road, and if anyone was out wanting to steal something, they would probably steal the wood that was on it. Okay. Or, or they could have took the fuel that was into it, which was over a thousand dollars. Someone went to a to a, a lot of work to do this, Patty. This didn't happen uh, in five ten minutes. This this was someone that had seen the truck and had to come back with a drill and uh, it didn't happen in five ten minutes because you you ask anyone in the tire but you can't even take a knife to those things and cut them sure with the deal that's in them there was a lot of time and effort went into it so an active volunteer would go and you throw something at a window that's completely different this this was a concerted effort to go out and, and, and send a strong message 
I'm really sorry that it happened to you and your business. So a $5,000 reward will get somebody talking, that's for sure. So is the best play for them to call Crime Stoppers or the RCMP? Or uh, what do you want to do here? 100%. Daddy, call Crime Stoppers, call the RCMP, and uh, leads to the rest, you get the 5000 Good luck with it, Terry. Sorry it happened. All right. Thank you. Have a great day, Patty. You too. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye. Imagine taking the time and the effort to flatten 12 tires with a drill. <laughs> so if that's one of your buddies, why don't you rat him off for $5,000? Uh, take one here, Dave. Okay, let's go to line number one. Rod, you're on the air. Hey, Patty. How are you doing? Couldn't be better. How are you doing? Not too bad. Patty, uh, uh, I'm just going to be real quick in that uh, about home care. And I know there's a lot of people that need home care out there. My brother could have used it, but uh, he actually went into a senior home, which is fine. But a lot of people don't want uh, that option. They want to be able to stay in their home. <clears throat> My wife worked with a uh, home care agency, a couple of them, and that there for a while. And, that, and uh, the sad thing about it is that uh, it takes her an hour to drive to, to where she's going, then an hour back for three hours a day, barely over a minimum wage. But the cost of fuel has gone so high, a lot of people probably are refusing to drive distance for three hours a day. And uh, speaking work for, they may get uh, eight hours a day instead of uh, three. So my thought on this, uh, if you hire a carpenter out of the area or a plumber from out of the area, they charge you mileage. Uh, home care people, why are they not be able to get some mileage to cover the cost of gas for the distance that they have to travel? Because if you refuse to go to work, uh, they will actually report you if if you're week on week off to uh, unemployment insurance, and you won't be able to get your unemployment insurance in that uh, that following week because you refuse to go to work. But if they have some kind of incentive in there, paid a little bit more money than just barely over minimum wage and uh, offer some mileage and that uh, for the wear and tear and the cost of fuel in their vehicles. Makes sense to me. Uh, I wonder, is this a contractual relationship between client and the company, or is this a government-funded mileage issue? Uh, well, I'm not too sure okay. because uh, the way I understand the way home care works, the client pays so much and uh, and the home care agency pays so much. And that. So uh, if I'm thinking about the years that I worked out uh, on pipeline and all that, uh, I worked for Flint there for many years. And I go out onto a field that was uh, owned by Ethel. You're guaranteed that Clint is making some money off me, some good money. And I'm assuming that's the same way with home care. The the ladies that go and do the home care, the agency is going to have to make some money as well. Otherwise, they won't go stay in business. Sure. So, uh, but I think something like that would be uh, some kind of option maybe uh, agencies to look at. Uh, the government agencies that are out there, this would really puzzle me for some time there that uh, the wife was paying union dues and they absolutely got nothing in return for union dues. No uh, no dental, no uh, prescription, no nothing. They were just paying union dues. And so it was kind of baffling on that. And the other agency that she did work for was not a government-funded agency, but she got uh, 100% medical. 
you know. So there's there's things that can be tossed around and stuff like that. But I'm really thinking about mileage and uh, with the cost of gas and that, and give the ladies a little more than three hours a day. You drive one place for three hours, and you might have to drive another 20 miles or 30 miles for another hour and a half or two hours. You know, it just you need some more time than just three hours a day. That's that's that doesn't cost cover the cost of uh, gas and, and for the mileage and even bother going out to, to work. Understood and point taken. I appreciate the time this morning, Rod. Yep, no problem. You have a good one. You too. Take care. Bye-bye. Yeah, bye-bye. All right, uh, let's go ahead and take a break. When we come back, we're going to talk about sharing the harvest. And Daryl was able to get some help for an addiction outside of the province. We'll hear from Daryl and Barry after this. Don't go away. Come back to the show. Let's go to line number three. Barry, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. Thanks for taking my call. No problem. Uh, speaker there now. You hear me now? I can hear you now. Hey, Patty. Thanks for taking my call. Um, Patty, talk about uh, sharing the harvest. We had big news in the uh, coming out of the government there uh, yesterday on BOCM reported that the uh, sharing the harvest program or the donation of big game meat to the food banks is going to become a reality. All it is now is just putting the amendment into the Wildlife Act, and that I see as just a mere formality. As it should be. I mean, those those amendments make all the sense in the world, right? Streamline it for whether it be the hunters, the licensed butchers, the food banks, their clients. So this is all really great news. Good on you. Thank you very much, Patty. And I accept the thanks only on behalf of Saul, who uh, put, who helped me out with this. Uh, uh, just me, you know, the face and the voice, I guess. But, Patty, uh, I'd just like to recap what we've done so far this year. Uh, sent you an email about it. We have uh, donated... Uh, uh, blueberry. We bought some blueberries this year. We have money in the bank, thanks to grants from uh, the Stoker Group and uh, Food First NL. Uh, we bought some blueberries, five, ga- five gallons of blueberries, and distributed those to the food banks. Uh, we bought, uh, we got uh, some capelin again this year. We got some. Uh, we bought some uh, rabbits. We bought some partridge berries, and we made uh, donations of moose and caribou. Uh, to the food banks. Uh, just a little while ago, we received a call from a, two gentlemen who had uh, harvested a large caribou and too much meat for them. They donated 90 pounds of caribou meat and steaks and roast patty. Fantastic. Magnificent news. It's great news, Patty. I was listening to Josh me yesterday on Food First uh, NL uh, talking to you, and, uh, you know, just. Uh, uh, I don't know if there's enough exposure about the sharing the harvest or the donation moose meat yet, because I think there's still a lot of people that don't know about it. And, you know, there's not everybody that can donate the moose meat either. You know, take a party of four hunters, a quarter of moose each. Well, that's enough to see them through the winter. But if you're, you know, if you have more than that or if you have more than what you can eat, please take a look in your deep freezer and make a donation now instead of, you know, looking at down the road next summer maybe when it's in the bottom freezer freezer burnt and it's going to have to go in the garbage. And that's a shameful waste of a wildlife resource, Patty. A hundred percent, you know, and the one that pops in my mind all the time when we hear that kind of stuff is seabirds. I mean... I know a guy in particular, he takes the bag limit every single time and all he does is end up in the following year throwing it all out. Yes, yes, yeah. and that, and and that's not to say anything negative or anything petty, but that's the kind of the attitude that we're still here, that we still experience here in Newfoundland and Labrador. You got to get get and uh, shoot and catch what you can, what you can, because you don't know if it's going to be anything left tomorrow. That's the way it was years and years ago, Patty, but that's not the way it is now. 
And, you know, I always say neat little phrases. You, it's, it's quite okay to catch your limit when you go fishing or hunting. It's okay to catch your limit, but limit your catch. Yeah, or make sure think- it gets to the place or the table of someone who would like a feed of myrrh or turrs or whatever the case may be, as opposed to, you know, hunting for sport. I know why people do it, but and I know that there's a significant population of uh, turrs out in Placentia Bay, for instance, but that, you know, it does irritate me to know. And I've said that right to this guy, and he tells me to mind my own business, and that's fine. But I, I see him every year throwing out a freezer yeah. full of birds that he took and didn't even, I don't even know if he tries to give them to anybody. Yeah, and that's the sad part about it, you know. And uh, I think now, Patty, I read somewhere in the Wildlife Service that you are now permitted to uh, donate uh, seabirds and and, uh, and and freshwater birds to the food banks. Now, this year it might be a little bit different because of the avian flu and the birds and that, right? Yeah, oh, absolutely. And that, you know, although I think there was an informal survey done of duck hunters in particular, and they, were gonna, they weren't going to uh, stay away uh, from hunting this year, even with the prevalence of avian flu. But before we get to the news, listen, for everyone behind Sharing the Harvest who put this in motion, and now it looks like it's going to see amendments in legislation to make it a real plan that now people will know more and more about it, will be able to help more and more people. I appreciate the time, Barry. Thank you. Thank you, Patty. It's always been a pleasure. Take good care. My pleasure. Bye-bye. All right, uh, time for the news. Uh, When we come back, we're talking about seniors with dementia. We're also going to talk about addictions with Daryl. He'll be first. Don't go away. Got plans for midnight? Bring your VOCM along with the best soundtrack for every night, anywhere. The VOCM All Night Show. Midnight on your VOCM. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number six. Good morning, Daryl. You're on the air. Good morning. How are you, sir? I'm doing okay. How are you doing? Great. I just wanted to talk about um, addiction and mental health and um, talk about things that people don't realize what happens behind closed doors in terms of government and support um, that people don't hear about. But um, I guess I could say this year I had a lot of struggle with uh, mental health and addiction. My addiction was gambling um, and mental health. Um, the Waterford couldn't really offer the support I needed, so that wasn't an option. And inpatient treatment at, in Cornerbrook would have only been uh, 21 days, which also wouldn't have uh, been a good option. I was looking for something more long-term and something supportive. So on May 24th, I left Newfoundland to go to inpatient treatment in Victoria, British Columbia. I spent 11 weeks in treatment. Um, it was a um, it was an amazing facility. I had great psychiatrists, nurses, and support staff, and it really made a huge difference in my life. It got me on the right medication. I understood more about my addiction, about my traumas, and about my mental health in general. And it was just very um, transforming for me. I really put the effort and put the work. For me to get to where I had to go, I had to advocate for myself. You know, you have to want to help, I feel, when it comes to addiction. And I know people feel like sometimes they feel like nobody is listening. And sometimes 
that may be the case. You may not have the right worker. The, may, the doctor might not be the right fit for you. But if you find the right people to work with you, you can get the supports that you need. If they aren't in Newfoundland, and if you've tried every alternative here that hasn't worked, there are other alternatives. And this was a big commitment for me, and it was a big change. I thought when I went, the day I left the fly, I wasn't going to be able to do what I'm like. I cannot do 11 weeks. It's just no way possible. But I just was determined, and I just got back two weeks ago because I did three months second stage housing after I was discharged from the facility. And it's amazing that the people that you meet who have addiction and and all walks of life, it's just amazing how you find so many different people who struggle just like yourself and profession doesn't matter. It could be any type of professional person and um, the groups were great and the programs were great, but it wasn't as hard of a process as I thought. I just reached out and the provincial government or medical care coverage covered the entire cost and made sure I was taken care of. And uh, like I said, I've just gotten back. I've only been back two weeks and I'm continuing on with the supports. I haven't had a relapse. Um, with my addiction in almost eight months, which I think is pretty impressive. And I take my medications on time, and I continue with all of my appointments. But with addiction, I feel um, anyone who's listening, you have to be the one who wants the help because someone can say you need treatment but if you're going because of somebody else and you're not going for yourself, it's not going to work. You have to be the one who wants to get the help and get that treatment and put the effort because that's what it is, effort and hard work and determination. And I personally would like to thank Eastern Health. I would like to thank the provincial government and all of my support team in Newfoundland who worked hard with me and especially in Victoria, BC. I want to thank everyone out there, all the staff and everyone who just didn't give up. It wasn't an easy 11 weeks. I had my moments, but I pulled through and I completed it and I finally managed to get back home and I've been doing great since I've gotten back home, but I still have a few things to work on and you know, a few programs to do, but yeah, my my outlook looks promising. But it was a very long, hard journey. But had I have not taken that journey, <clears throat> I don't think I would be here speaking with you on the phone today. I don't. I don't think I would have survived much longer. So it really, really, really helped me big time. Well, I'm glad to hear that, and I'm glad you're here to speak with us this morning, and glad to hear that you're doing well. Do we know each other, Daryl? Um, yeah, I think I talked to you a long time ago about gambling or something about addiction. Okay. It would have been a very long time ago. Okay. Uh, I, it just kind of popped in my mind when I heard your voice. Uh, so, listen, we wish you nothing but the best in your ongoing recovery, and uh, whenever you feel like chatting, uh, 
make sure you make time for this program again. Uh, quick question, and feel free not to answer it. What was the breaking point for you to go out and seek help? The breaking point for me was I had a suicide attempt, and that, that was the point where I was at my lowest. I was in a lot of debt. I was in a very low um, state of mind, and I'm like, I can't be a, I can't be in this state. I need to reach out, and then I fought hard to get what I needed, and it really happened. It really does happen. If you really want it to happen, it takes a lot of work, but if you want success and if you want to get treatment, um, it is there, but you have to put the effort. It's not easy, but the end result is amazing. You learn a lot about your addiction, and you learn a lot about your mental health, and you learn a lot about your traumas, and you just learn so many coping skills, ways to deal with it. So I'm just, for me, the breaking point was I was either going to die or I had to get get the help, and I chose to get the help, and I've been feeling great. I've been doing good sense. Don't I can't say I have never been depressed. I, I have my moments, but 90% of the time I'm great. So and that's what I like to do take day by day but so far i've been like i said clean for eight or nine months and i say clean because gambling is still an addiction some people don't look at it as an addiction and um i'm just extremely proud of myself and i did it for myself i didn't do it for anyone else and i just want people to know that there are supports out there you've just got to fight hard for it and, and reach out to people and not give up Appreciate the time. I wish you nothing but the very best, Harold. Thanks a lot. Okay. Thank you, Patty. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Stories of redemption and getting the help and getting back on track. It's helpful when people share. Let's go ahead and take a break. When we come back, Wendy wants to talk about a school bus driver. What about the driver? We'll find out. Welcome back. Let's go. Line number five. Wendy, you're on the air. Oh, hi there, Patty. I think in your introduction you said this was about a bus driver, but in actual fact, I am the bus driver. It's still about a bus driver. Pardon? It's still about a bus driver. Yes, correct. So correct. Okay, so, I'm sorry. So that's okay. So you may remember I have phone before in the spring, and the problems are still continuing. I have people going through my bus stop signs very regularly. They're on coming from the front. They're not coming from around the back. They're coming straight on through. I can see them right in the eyes. Now, they're ignoring or they're distracted, whatever's happening. The fact is they're going through. It's so often that I'm surprised when it doesn't happen. It should be the other way around, hey? And it's very dangerous. So it happens in the morning. The children are on the side of the road. I've had two close calls that took the good out of me enough to make me cry all the way to school. Um, that's just me as the driver. The, it's going to be too late when someone gets hurt. I'm trying to find a way to fix this, to stop this. I know it'll never be fully stopped, but people need to be held accountable. And we need the cameras on these uh, stop signs. So there was talk in May that it was coming from government. I haven't seen it since. I don't know if you know anything, if they're coming or not. But we're not allowed to put cameras on the bus as drivers. That's what they're saying. But here's my issue with that. I'm not allowed to speak to the NLESD. I tried. I have to go through my comp- the company, my, you know, my employer. I'm trying not to involve them. But they don't know all the questions that I have. I should be able to talk to the NLSD with my questions. 
I've been looking at documents. I've been trying to see the literature that tells me I cannot put a sign on my bus stop. I cannot find it. It doesn't seem to exist. To try to find what? A sign or say that part again? I'm trying to put a camera on my bus stop sign if the government is not doing it before somebody, you know, so I can take action to prove that this is happening to, for whatever reason, to, I've had people um, had tickets already because I was lucky enough to get their plates, but I can't be doing that all the time. And it's happening everywhere. It's not just me. I'm the only one speaking. It's happening everywhere. Drivers are coming to me now with their stories, but they're not speaking out. Parents are seeing it on the side of the road in shock and awe. They, they're messaging me privately, but, you know, uh, one even messaged me that they're now getting a dash cam in their car to try to help at the bus stop side, you know, the side of the road. Um, it should be government. It needs to come back to the cameras, need to be installed. But there's been no mention since May, so I don't know if you know. If no, coming or not. I don't. And then they'll always lean back on privacy when it comes to cameras. But, I mean, if we know there's a problem, and there is, I see it too. I live in a school neighborhood, so I see it. Uh, and there's this lady, I, I believe she's in Mount Pearl. Uh, every now and then someone belongs to her. It's not her herself. They send me clips because she tapes it from her uh, her living room window, and it happens all the time. You know, I just don't understand the mentality of someone willing to cut through a school bus sign that has the flashing red lights and the stop sign deployed because whether you're behind the bus or approaching the bus, there is going to be a child getting off of the bus. So Mm -hmm. why anyone would be willing to take the chance of striking and hurting or killing a child because they're in some panic to get to the next red light just boggles my mind. Right. So I'm in a small town of Portugal called St. Philip's. It's happening too often in our small town. It's almost embarrassing that this is happening the way it is. I, I, I plead with our residents to please stop. Now, for those who are doing it properly every time, I thank you and I wave and I smile and I'm nodding my head and they're sometimes back so far that it's silly, which it's not. I'm just, you know, uh, it's actually very good that they're back so far. So I'm trying to make awareness, parents to be alert on the side of the road, tell your children to watch out for that first car, make sure they're stopped, make sure they make eye contact, that the wheels are no longer rolling before you step out in the morning, because we can't help them. When I stop the children from getting off the bus because there's a car coming, I can do that from inside, I can't do it from outside. And also, please tell everyone in your household, young, I'm not saying only young, but young and old, uh, not to go through the bus stop sign. I'm I'm seeing all ages, and it's it's quite uh, discouraging. But back to the incident uh, about cameras. I want to put a camera now. I can't do it. Will I lose my job? I don't know. The school board can't. Um, I need proof. I want to see the writing. If somebody can tell me the policy, this is where your program could help me. I want to see the writing that tells me no cameras on the stop sign. Not just because someone in the office said it, because they said it, because they thought it. I want the writing to show me, because I'm not talking about inside the bus. I'm talking about outside where there are no children. It won't be a privacy breach for the children, because they're not even there. Understood, yeah. So, um, actually, there was a report from the Privacy Commissioner, uh, Donovan Malloy, in 2018, that there was no law against cameras on school buses. But yes, they must be deemed necessary. So how can I make mine necessary? Who can I approach? Uh, This is where I want to go with that. If it's not allowed, tell me how to fix it, or can we make a policy change? How can we approach that? 
uh, fine if it's not allowed, let's fix it, because it should be allowed. And that, But this would all be fixed if government gave the camera finally. And why did they say in May and now it's not happening? Or is it happening? We're not hearing about it, are we? Well, let me chase it. I, I know where to go to find out more, that and I'll do wonderful. exactly that. That would be wonderful, because it was announced in May for construction sites, uh, traffic cams, and bus stop arms which is what this is, is and yep. is what we need. I'm hoping with the higher conviction rates, people will stop. It's 500 to $1,200 plus six demerits. It's very serious, and they're still doing it. The most important is that somebody's going to get hurt. I can't believe nobody's been hurt yet, or I don't know the numbers. At some point, I guess there was. But it's happening regularly. I had three two days ago, one yesterday, one today. That's just me. I'm getting plates, I'm going to the police, I'm getting tickets issued. But I can't be at this all the time. I have a full-time job and I'm a mom. I've, I have multiple jobs, actually. I can't keep track. This is in my spare time, but I, I need help. I need, I'm need i just one person. But I need people to stop. It's really discouraging. It's really uh, for the safety of the, a lot of them have their own children, and they're still going through the signs. I don't understand. Um, I'd like to uh, just mention really quick, I was reading uh, with my son, reading the littles, and the Morecambs didn't believe there was, there was a mouse, so they didn't set out a trap because they didn't believe it because they didn't see it. So I feel that's what's happening here. They don't believe it's a big issue because they're not seeing it, so they're not doing anything about it because they don't believe it. So they need cameras to prove it. And they need more awareness. They need more boots on the ground for people to uh, pick up that phone. I don't know who they can phone. Phone their municipalities because it's happening everywhere. Uh, Write your council. Write your government. But people need to know that this is happening in every jurisdiction. And it is really ridiculous. So, But I understand privacy. If you're going to drop a child off at their house, you don't want to see that child go to that home. But the cameras now are so advanced. There's even remote controls. The one I want is a remote control that I can press the button inside the bus only to record the first car. Once that first car stops, I can stop. It won't record the children at all. So if that's the old reason, it can't be a reason anymore. It needs to be revisited. I agree 100% because we've got to provide evidence, and it can't be incumbent on the bus drivers to be sitting there with a notepad, taking licenses and taking pictures or whatever the process would be. It should be as simple as using the technology that's readily available to curb this as best we can before the headline is child struck killed. It's unbelievable, yeah. I I totally get it, Wendy. I'll chase it. Yeah, thank you. And one quick thing before I go, you may have the authority, I'm not sure. I have emailed for all the radio stations to please add it to their morning and afternoon announcements. When you talk about hydroplaning and the weather and, you know, people be careful of the school and the buses, please, maybe a quick reminder, five or six words, remember to obey bus stop signs. That's as simple as that. And your station would carry it so far. And I haven't heard back, but I think it's such a simple fix for awareness in their minds every day when it's morning and afternoon on your radio. That would be fantastic. I will put that in the ear of the newsroom, and it makes sense to me. And I appreciate the time this morning, Wendy. Keep up the good work. Thank you for everything. Take care. Bye-bye. All right, bye-bye. Let's go ahead and take a break for the news on time. When we come back, Gus is there to talk the fishery, undoubtedly. And Jerry wants to talk about seniors and dementia. That happens after this break. Don't go away. Saturday morning, join us for the Irish Newfoundland Show. Send your request to irishnl at vocm.com or submit them online at vocm.com. Welcome back. Let's go to the top of the board, line number one. Good morning, Jerry. You're on the air. Morning, Patty. 
uh, just like to bring into the conversation your show, the uh, seniors and dementia. Mm-hmm. Uh, unfortunately, uh, October 2019, we were my spouse was faced with uh, diagnosis of early onset of dementia. So, having received that, that started. Uh, us to investigate what do we do we contacted Alzheimer's Association and they said the first thing you need to do is get in contact with your with Eastern Health to see uh, what provisions so contacting Eastern Health and the appropriate person uh, the discussion went into whether we would receive a caseworker, a social worker to come in and do uh, an observation and was said that the patients, now the things that I'm saying, I must qualify myself, are to my understanding. I'm not saying these, these may not be exactly what the policy is or factual, but this was the understanding I was left with. So uh, I apologize if I don't have all the policies uh, down pat. But so they said, number one, she'd have to be a health and safety risk. So my mind said, I didn't reply to that, but I just said, my gosh, I mean, dementia, isn't that a health and safety issue right off the bat? Wouldn't you just come in, do your assessment and determine if she is a health and safety? But anyways, and then it went to income. Who's your employer? When they discovered who our employer was at the time, they said, you're better off to go through your your insurance. And so I said, okay, so that ended that conversation. So we went to our insurance. We were both still employees and did our due diligence. And our in, insurance said, uh, in reference to uh, nursing home care, uh, you qualify for 12500 so based on that number and getting ready to retire, I said, well, looking at numbers, I said, that sounds pretty good. So I decided to retire. Then we, once I retired, we put in the appropriate nursing home care uh, forms filled out by our doctor and by her specialist. And uh, to receive a reply, unfortunately, you guys do not qualify uh, your policy our policy says that the patient, your, your patient, has to be tubular fed or intravenous fed. We only provide nursing home care for those. We do not provide domestic home care. So, not reading the fine print or aware of that policy, of course, what happened now, Eastern Health, because of our income, and now that that may may have changed with retirement. So we have to follow up with them. But uh, insurance, based on our insurance, and we we still play, I mean, I don't mind revealing, the two of us had the same employer. We both retired, and we continue to pay our premiums. Each of us pay 103 a month to maintain the best level of care that we can get as retirees. So that's 206 a month we pay. But yet, in in this situation, there is no care provided and as I was saying Eastern Health um, is based on income we would end up paying out of pocket so I just I just wanted to highlight that uh, there are those of us out there that have seemed to fallen 
between the cracks. And uh, I know the government has just instituted the new seniors advocate. And so I plan to follow up with her to see if there's any relief, if the policy could be changed. Like you have people out there, they've been, they've worked 30 plus years and paid premiums. Their insurance does not cover this area. Eastern Health is basing everything on income. And I mean, they, they, they write their policies based that, you know, far above my knowledge to get into, but just as lay people with our understanding, we're finding ourselves frustrated. And, you know, you get emotional over things like Muskrat Falls and the amount of money that went into that. And, you know, you're wondering like, okay, how much, how much uh, concentration was actually put on some of these uh, issues that we ha- have that people are finding. These are real situations, real people going to real situations. You know, are the policy writers those that would, regardless of whatever happened in their life, would never have to be have to worry about the policy because of their lucrative income. Their, you know, but there are those out there of us out there who are dealing with situations and looking for resolutions. I think you absolutely should follow up with Susan Walsh, who's the new seniors advocate. And uh, as a matter of fact, we spoke about this exact issue off the top of the program this morning because it was a story of home care, woe, and people not qualifying for the paid caregiver benefits and the like. We also talked about the numbers of people living with dementia in the province. At this moment in time, there's 10,100. It's looking like it's going to increase by 40% to 14,500 by 2030. So people are facing it today, and more and more will be facing it in the future, Jerry. So you're absolutely right to bring it up on the show. Okay, thank you, Patty. I'd just like to be one of those to, uh, you know, bring myself into the picture and say, yeah, this is real. It sure is. I wish you and your family nothing but the best, Jerry, and thanks for making time for the show. All right. Thank you, Patty. Take care. Bye. Okay, bye-bye. All right, let's keep going. Let's go to line number two. Gus Etchegary, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. Morning to you. Thank you for taking my call. Anytime. I was kind of hoping that, uh, as a result of the minister call, that uh, you'd have a flood of calls from interested people in the fisheries of Newfoundland. Unfortunately, I haven't. I must say that I'm absolutely upset at what the minister had to say. She strongly uh, stressed that she believes... The best way to deal with our vital fishery resource, which is rock bottom now, is through multilateral negotiations. And if most people don't understand that, what she means is sitting down with uh, the Russians and 20 other foreign nations who have over 50 or 60 years destroyed our resource and find solutions with them to rebuild the Northern Cod and the 3PS, the Grand Banks fishery, which they destroyed. You know, this is a clear declaration. The minister doesn't understand the East Coast fisheries. She doesn't understand fisheries management. And she's on the wrong track. And, 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 and you know, unfortunately... There's no fishery politician in uh, Newfoundland representing Newfoundland and Labrador in Ottawa or any in this province who, who understands the fisheries any better. 
they, they should know that foreign nations destroyed her fisheries. See, you know, I've sent you quite a lot of stuff, including it, is documentation showing that close to 90% of the offshore fisheries of Newfoundland was fished for 40 years by uh, 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 by uh, these foreign nations. 90% of the fish was taken by these people, and 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 they destroyed the fishery until a moratorium was de- declared in 1992. Does does the minister believe that Iceland went to these foreign nations? to protect their fisheries that Norway did, Australia, New Zealand, dozens of South American countries? Do you think that they went to these foreign nations and and that fished in their general areas and negotiated how to protect the fisheries for the benefit of the the fishermen of, of of their countries? For God's sake. You know, the minister made the same statements of federal concerns, genuine concerns about our fishery, the same concerns that we have listened to since the days of Pierre Trudeau and and his DFO minister for many years, a fellow named Romain LeBlanc. The combination of the two, by the way, started the decline of the fisheries in this province. You know, Patty, I don't know what to think of it all, quite frankly. We've been at this now for many years, particularly since 1992, trying to get people, and I'm not alone, there are others, who are trying to get people, governments in particular, to understand there's a vital need to rebuild the, the fisheries they destroyed. You know, the oceans of the world occupy 70% of this planet. And it contains fisheries, lots of fisheries. And unlike minerals or oil or gas, fisheries are renewable. They're renewable. You can't drink oil and you can't eat minerals, but you sure as hell depend on a major, major supply of food for the world. It's being stressed more and more every day. Quite frankly, uh, you know, as I said before, along with others, we've been trying the, to important the, uh, to uh, stress the importance of the fishery to this province, but we haven't succeeded, not by a gunshot. We've expressed our opinions to the feds and over and over without any success. And I tell you, quite frankly, we have concluded that the major region, that the minister today, she's a good woman, I'm sure. She doesn't understand what she's talking about. But the major region, DFO ministers of the past, the DFO ministry of fisheries in total, the the reason they're ignoring our efforts and reacts uh, and and, and our efforts to... uh, 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 is, is, is simply because our own government, our own government, the union that represents the fishermen of Newfoundland, the industry, the fishing industry that depends 
on a resource called a fishery. Without it, they don't exist. As well as community organizations. Can you imagine the municipalities organization meeting last week with representation from all over the province and the word fish was not even mentioned? Not even mentioned. In light of the fact that, that, that many communities in Newfoundland today are voting to take advantage of, of relocation. It's a disgrace. You know, it's, it's honestly, all have remained quiet and have made no effort whatsoever to force Canada to restore the fisheries they destroyed. Again, I repeat, the Northern Cod, St. Pierre Bank, and the fisheries to the south coast, and the, the Grand Banks, and, and, and uh, you know, it's, 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 it's very disheartening. Anyway, the DFO minister, like her predecessors, are oblivious to the impact of their destructive management. And, you know, uh, this morning, the course she's taking regarding our future fisheries is almost the equivalent to the captain of a ship deliberately giving orders to head for collision with the jagged cliffs of Newfoundland. And plenty of that's all I have to say, but it's very disheartening. And why, in the name of heavens, Newfoundlanders are not speaking up is beyond me. And they're welcome to call this program, as you know, Gus. Uh, there was certainly nothing enlightening or encouraging that I heard from the minister this morning. So I'm in a similar position as you would be here today. And I appreciate not only the call here this morning, but the information that you continue to share with me via email. So keep that up, and thanks for this. Thank you, Patty. Thanks, Gus. All the best. All right, let's take a break. Uh, final one of the morning. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's go. Line number five. Good morning, Simeon. You're on the air. Uh, good morning, Patty. Morning. Good morning. I just want to make a few comments about the. Uh, I'm not really sure it's related matter that uh, that uh, Mr. Hogan, Justice Public uh, Minister uh, Safety, Public Safety Minister John Hogan, will be in Goose Bay. Uh, probably next week, not even confirmed yet, but Hogan told CBC that uh, depends on the House Assembly that that's whether it's done sitting or, or Hogan will be in a situation where people living in, he referred to living at, tr- at the trails boils down addictions and mental health issues. And and that's really pretty, pretty good uh, for whom, whoever raises concern, but I, I assume it's, it's coming from uh, municipality politicians in Happy Valley Goose Bay, which is there's nothing wrong with that to, to raise the awareness of the concerns of our people, the Inuit people. And I can certainly not able to speak on the Inuit people. I'm not Inuit, I'm Inu. I'm from Natoshish. I was raised in David's helmet. And I know the the, the addictions, uh, when you have a chronic addiction, it's, it's, it's not easy a path to take, but but there are certainly parameters or uh, remedies that, that people can take, like uh, seeking uh uh, a treatment. There is no cure for addiction, a chronic addiction for a substance or a drug addiction. There's no cure, but there is a, a lifetime process. Treatment can can transpire if the individual is willing to take that that step in the first place. But anyway, I am a little bit concerned that uh, 
uh, uh, Goose Bay municipality or politicians or wannabes like Metis Group uh, try to use our, our our people as as a, to generate their own revenues because of the uh, the inflation, the economy that's uh, that's really fall uh, fall out uh, over the last few uh, few years about the COVID and all the high pricing that food and the gasoline and the whole nine yards of uh, the, the living is, is very, very expensive at this time. But anyway, I, I, I rather see I'm a little bit disappointed on, on, on our elected officials, which I got nothing against anyone, but certainly I have a right to speak under freedom of right, uh, freedom of speech. And I certainly very disappointed in Inno Nation and bank, two bank councils, not not able to, to stand up with these people that uh, what they're saying publicly about uh, people who are addicted, uh, addicted who are with substance and, and, and drugs. But uh, I'm really applauded the uh, the Shehadi Bank Council that they have banned uh, drug dealers, cocaine dealers in their reservation, which there's nothing wrong with that. And, and I certainly... Uh, like to see the band council from Naroji standing up for our people, including the Inno Nation, uh, making a statement about this because we already seen the children who are under protection of child welfare, child welfare protection, Infant Child Welfare Act. They have been, uh, you know, should have been apprehended by by uh, social services, and they placed them under the non-Aboriginal people's homes. And people in Goose Bay call our children uh, uh, mortgage payments. And now it's uh, it's continuing on. It's going. They're going to try to take advantage on our people's uh, addiction. They're going to try to set up their program, uh, mobile treatment, uh, a treatment program, a treatment facility. Probably get more trying to get more funding from federal government and provincial government by using these Inu people. But I certainly like to see the Inu Nation. Certainly, Inu Nation, which uh, they have been doing a lot of human rights uh, uh, challenges uh, to to governments. But I certainly like to see them uh, step up the plate, start speaking up. And if they can't speak up, uh, they can uh, deal with the heat in the kitchen, get out of the kitchen. Let somebody else do it for them. Because I certainly don't uh, don't uh, see it's it's a solution for our people to to be used as the revenues. Because we have, I mean, there's there's some safety shelters who are now in place, uh, women's for shelters in Goose Bay, mm-hmm. and my own cousin. Uh, froze to death in Goose Bay when when the when she was uh, pushed away and and found the uh, frozen death in Goose Bay. So certainly it's not an answer to to uh, try to act that you're sincere about Aboriginal people and Métis people, Métis group. I don't know whether they're the Aboriginal. I don't think they are an Aboriginal people, but they're just just seeing the benefits and the funding that's coming through from from you know people from federal government. That's why there's so much. Membership today, and there was no. I mean, I'm very surprised that there were more numbers than uh, than uh, today that they said there's uh, Métis group, and I don't know what a Métis means to me, but but I thought it's always mixed French and English, so mm-hmm. or I don't know. So I, I mean, I mean, I mean, you don't know who you're dealing with here. The Inu people are very different. And the Métis, they don't speak uh, their language. What kind of language do they do? They don't have a culture. I don't know what kind of culture they have. We have a culture, you know, people. We are very sincere people. Yeah. And we don't 
take advantage of any situation, but when we see something that's that's going in the wrong wrong way, then then we speak up. And, and I'm, like I said, I'm very surprised that our uh, elected officials are not taking on this because this this chap, uh, the Minister of Public Safety guy, is going to be in Goose Bay yes, yes. without any consultation with our. Average, uh, our elected officials, and he's going to come in and pressure himself in Goose Bay and try to offer a solution, which you have no idea who he's dealing with. I mean, what if the Inu people start speaking Inu in, in the program or whatever program they're going to set up? Are they going to be able to communicate these people, I wonder? Well, maybe that kind of type of engagement will take place upon arrival. I have no idea. But we've just cleared 1201, but you've had the last words. I mean, thanks for your time. Good luck. Thank you very much. Take care. Bye-bye. All right, that is indeed the show for today, but we will indeed pick up this conversation again tomorrow morning right here on VOCM and Big Land FM's Open Line. On behalf of the producer, David Williams, I'm your host, Patty Daly. Have yourself a safe, fun, happy day. We'll talk in the morning. Bye-bye.